this game is not for the super industry. This game is for Australians. So it should be flexible to reflect our different needs. Hello and welcome to Pocket Money. If you earn a wage in Australia, there's a very good chance that you're getting paid superannuation. Currently, employers have to contribute a percentage of your pay into a nominated super account. Yeah, that's right. And basically, the purpose of super is it's kind of an enforced savings that you can access when you're at the age of retiring. So that money that builds up over time provides a bit of an income for you that either substitutes or supplements the age pension that you'd be receiving. So superannuation as we know it in Australia is the grand old age of 29 years old. There you go. It's a millennial. I never knew. But some are calling for a review of the scheme and in some pretty radical ways. We actually did a really good episode on this earlier this season where we spoke to Kirsten Hunter from Future Super about how the current system doesn't really benefit women and other Australians who don't necessarily work full time for their entire career and therefore retire with a lot less. This year, we've already seen Super in the headlines for a bunch of reasons, including the controversial early release Super scheme that some Australians have been able to access due to coronavirus. Other critics of superannuation have said it could be better or people have floated the idea that Australians should be able to access their money earlier to perhaps buy a home or use it for other reasons. Senator Andrew Bragg is a senator for New South Wales and he's also a very passionate advocate about the future of superannuation in Australia and he recently published a book on it called Bad Egg, How to Fix Super. I had the opportunity to chat with the senator about his ideas on the future of super, including his suggestion that super needs what he calls radical surgery. Ooh, I like it. Superannuation is such a juicy topic and it really does impact every single Australian. So this is a really interesting episode. So let's jump into the interview, shall we? Let's do it. Senator Andrew Bragg, welcome to Pocket Money. Okay, great to see you. Andrew, in your maiden speech in Parliament last year, you said that superannuation was not working for Australians. And in your brand new book, Bad Egg, you've said that the system needs drastic surgery. Can you tell us at a top line level why you think this is the case? Well, Kate, the main point I was making in my first speech was that the government is so heavily invested in super uh, that we want it to work. And I guess today what I'm saying is, Above all, we want the system to work. We want it to get people off the pension. Uh, otherwise, why are we doing this? You've said that the super, you know, superannuation needs objectives and that it doesn't have objectives. Isn't the objective that Australians can self-fund their retirement? Well, it's nice that you say that and think that, but the fact is we've never legislated that as a formal framework. As part of the research for the book, I was able to find out that the scheme was designed on a tablecloth, or I should say on a napkin, which was lost. So someone probably took it to the pub and lost it. It's a great big idea. And I don't want to sound too political or partisan, but it is a great idea, poorly executed. And so uh, we've now had the scheme for 30 years. Uh, I think the scheme should be very clearly defined as there to get people off the pension. 
Andrew, you've said Australians are being held back from, say, home ownership because of superannuation and that access to money that's being put away for super in the future could be used to buy a home instead. Our research at Finder shows that like 22% of Australians say they don't think they'll ever be able to afford a home. And another 12% have said they're not interested in buying their own home because they think it's out of reach. Tell us about this idea of accessing super to boost home ownership. So one of the big problems we have these days is the cost of a home and also the the cost of a deposit is so much higher than what it was 30 years ago when super started. And so with home ownership harder generally, it's very hard for especially lower income earners to to cobble together the the 10% you need in order to get a loan. And so I've had people write to me saying that they have 20 grand in their super fund, you know, they're 35 years years of age, if they can't get access to their super, they'll never have a home. So this is a real problem. Now, when you think about low-income earners being underwritten by the pension in retirement, it seems really mean to deny people the choice of being able to cobble together a deposit. And so I know that some people have been unhappy with the early release scheme. I mean, our view is it's been a very pop- hugely popular scheme. And you can see the numbers. People have regarded it as an important way to get access to their own money in a economic shock. But of course, it would be better if people could access super for a limited purpose, such as for home ownership. And so I think this whole idea of allowing people to access their super for a first home is a really sound policy idea. Now, I'm not saying this is going to solve the housing market problems. It's not going to change the supply, which is more supply is needed in big cities. But it will allow some people access to a home where they would never otherwise be able to. What are some of the disadvantages with that? You've touched on, obviously, the volatile property market. We've got disparity in terms of housing prices, depending on where you live. How would you kind of box that out so people weren't kind of, you know, blowing their money on this and then potentially ending up with nothing to support themselves on later? Are there are there obvious risks that need to be negated? Well, to start with, let's start with the, the facts. I mean, most people are on the pension. So most people are reliant on the government in retirement. I mean, the super scheme has, has been unsuccessful in getting people off the pension. And so effectively, the downside here would be that uh, people would have you know, less money in retirement. But the best way to avoid poverty in retirement is actually to own your own home. Uh, the way that our tax and social security laws work, they absolutely favour you know, home ownership. I mean, trying to live on the equivalent of New Startle, or actually it's the pension in retirement, plus some rental assistance in a, in a rented house is much more challenging than uh, owning a home and taking a, you know, a pension. So the, the fact is, uh, for people in the real world, I mean, the trade-off between a super contribution and a deposit is real. I mean, for, for really wealthy people, this is often not a, not, not a factor because uh, they'll have their house and they'll have super. But for many people, it is becoming much more of a trade-off than it would have been 30 years ago uh, because of the explosion in property prices. Is it a negative, though, to have people, say, owning homes and then still having to draw down on a government pension? Or is that is that sort of traded off by the idea of keeping super a little bit more nimble? Well, if you can only have one thing, either your house or your super, you're much better off with your house because of the way that, that, that social security and tax laws work. And don't forget that your primary residence is tax exempt. So you still pay tax on your super. So you know, we don't want to see all wealth concentrated in one asset class in this country, but we, we really need to get a more credible policy, especially for lower income earners um, and, and home ownership, because 
this has been a real tradition of, of my party for 75 years that we have championed home ownership. And I think super is making home ownership much harder. So it's a conversation that we need to have. It's a conversation I think the super industry should really engage in properly because this is not going to go away. I mean, just like we talk about the cost of the scheme, home ownership, and, you know, obviously the rate of super. I mean, all these things are, are important and the industry should engage on them. Some people might say, well, where do you draw the line? You know, if you're going to let people access it for a home or we're seeing the early access scheme, is there a risk involved with that? Or do you think people should be able to make a call on that, what they want to spend that money on? If the super scheme actually worked and got people off the pension, I think there could be a considerable cost. But at the moment, it's just not working. And the fact is, uh, until we have it on a pathway where it is likely to get half the population off the pension, it's hard to see at paying for itself. I mean, for example, in this year alone, it's going to cost the budget uh, actually more than 36. It's going to cost more like $40 billion this year in foregone tax revenue. Plus there's $32 billion in fees coming out. So it's a very expensive system that doesn't do much for the country. It's a very difficult conversation to have because of the enormous power, resourcing and rent seeking that goes on within the super industry. Uh, that try and stifle debate and close down people with a different view, so, which is very unhealthy. But thankfully, like Australia is a noisy and a very noisy democracy, and which we love. And thankfully, people are now starting to have a, a good hard look at this. I think the early access scheme is going to be a real catalyst. We'll look back on that and think that was the opening up of a more sensible discussion about super. And the fact is. Some people would be better off with their first home. Other people would be better off with more super. Like, it's not a one-size-fits-all. To play devil's advocate, some people might say, isn't it a good idea that Australians have savings when they're older? Aren't you putting people at risk by having different kind of caveats where they can take money out for different things? But at the end of the day, the number one thing you can have to avoid poverty in retirement is your home. If this scheme is costing people their home or prospect of having a home, then it needs to change. Look, for example, at the moment, the average balance for a male, which is much higher than it is for a female, is about $160,000. You know, that's four or five years of a pension. And then that's it. I mean, the current retirement age is 65, 66. Uh, average life expectancy for a male is, you know, 20 years plus. So that's a good example of this, the system just isn't going to, to cut it. So having a home provides a whole range of different parts of security and retirement. I know, so you're calling for reform in the super scheme. Do you see any similar schemes overseas that you would consider better practice or best practice? I know in the past you've mentioned Singapore, New Zealand have a different setup again. Can you can you talk about what you're seeing overseas? Yeah, so Singapore have a scheme where you can use super for a house. And I mean, that is often a feature of these similar schemes. I mean, the Australian scheme is probably the only one I know that is so narrow and rigid, uh, whereby it doesn't, just doesn't allow for any other type of uh, usage, it's very narrow. I mean, we do have life insurance, which um, again has been seen, uh, or has been a major drain on retirement savings over the last few years. And our government's recently passed laws to stop insurers and super funds from taking unnecessary premiums from, especially low income, and especially young workers under the age of 25, where people who are 20 years old, didn't have any dependents having to pay for all this excessive life insurance, which was draining their accounts. Just ridiculous. Uh, so we've, we've tidied that up. And now really the only thing that a, a, you know, an older adult can have is life insurance. But as I say, I think there's good 
case for home ownership to be part of our scheme. And beyond that, let's let's see. But this scheme is not for the super industry. This scheme is for Australians. So it should be flexible to reflect our different needs. Yeah, and coming back to Australia, and something I, I've found really interesting and I know you've talked about, and, and particularly interesting for this show, I think, Andrew, is like you've talked about how people, Australians aren't particularly engaged with their super, and certainly our research has backed that up. Our most recent research showed 41% of the people we, we surveyed said they either understood a tiny bit about their super or nothing at all. How do you think we can get Australians more engaged and enthused about their super funds and actually, you know, being a little bit more active with them? Well, the industry has wanted a, wanted a system where people couldn't find it within themselves to engage and they've fostered apathy and di- disengagement because it suited them to, frankly, to build up more and more funds on their management and charge high fees. Uh, that has been the business model, right? I mean, it's very hard to work out what the funds are doing. For example, some of them are making big political donations, they don't, don't disclose that to their members. It's very concerning. The early access scheme has been a good way to engage people. But beyond that, I think that we need to cut through the layers of confusion. One of the things that I am a supporter of is a, a simple government default fund, which could be set up very easily under Australian law, which could be the, the default collection agency for people who don't choose a fund. And then we, they could outsource investment management to the future fund, which has been hugely successful and very high performing. And it would be a cheap and cheerful default fund. And it would have simple disclosure, easy to understand. Then, of course, people could choose to move into a different fund. But at least then you'd have a basic cheap and cheerful fund, which, you know, I think government would have more skin in the game. I'm sorry that this isn't the way that the scheme was established. I mean, the Keating government gave it to the unions and to the financial institutions for various reasons, uh, which I can go into. But really, uh, it's unusual that there'd be no government sort of backstop or no government default fund uh, in a market structure like this. Because at the end of the day, this scheme only exists because of government mandate. I mean, we established a scheme under Australian law. I mean, some people say I'm a socialist because I say this. I think it's so funny. I mean, this scheme only exists because Canberra established it. We will do whatever we think is necessary to get the, the best deal for the members. I mean, we're not going to be run by an industry they only exist because of us. I mean, it's it's really a warped. I mean, some of the people in this industry they just they blow my mind. As you mentioned before, it's been is it it's twenty nine years, isn't it? Not quite thirty since Super's been in action. How much oversight has been provided? Does it seem to you that it's well overdue for an overhaul? Obviously, you know, thirty years is a long time ago. Very significant uh, opportunity for us to get this scheme on the right track. And the Treasury, Josh Frydenberg, has a retirement income review underway, which is looking at uh, the way that contributions work, uh, the interaction with the budget and the social security system. And then more broadly, uh, we will have a look at the market structure in this space. But the thing is, I mean, there was an article written by Peter Van Onselen in The Australian two weeks ago, which I thought was quite good. He basically said, look, you know, if if you're in favour of abolishing the scheme, you sort of deal yourself out of the, the, the debate. I mean, I'm not for abolition. I'm for making it work, which will be a radical redraw, right? Because you're going to make it a lot more flexible. But equally, people who run the tired old lines about super also sort of deal themselves out of the debate. I mean, if you want to have a 12% super or 15% super or whatever you want to have, you've got to be able to show what it's going to do for the nation. How many more people will you get off the pension? right? How much better would people's lives be in retirement? And I have to say that the industry's responses have been totally wanting. 
they don't seem to be able to answer uh, these questions. Maybe because they know the answers, they don't like the answers. But at the end of the day, for example, in this year, if we're going to spend $40 billion on this scheme through foregone tax revenue, we want to get a return at least as good as that. And how would you see that panning out for sort of your everyday Australian? What would be your advice to, to people, even just engaging with the system as it is now without the reform? You know, with, with your experience and oversight of the industry, if they're earning money, they're, they're paying super, what, what's the best way to kind of make sure that you're invested and you're getting the, the most out of it? The best way to think about this from an individual's point of view is what is the actual amount I'm going to need in retirement to be self-funded and work back from that? Of course, People need, need to make their own judgments about whether or not they should be putting more money um, into a home deposit or a mortgage or into their super. But it's very hard to, to calculate this by reading the stuff that the funds give you because they, as I say, I think they, they revel in opacity. They love opacity. But effectively, from an individual's point of view, the super scheme is there to provide you with a privately funded pension of your own money. But as I say, that shouldn't happen at the expense of you being able to get a, a home, which all the research shows is the most important way to prevent poverty in retirement. That is my basic view. I mean, the policymakers in Canberra, obviously we need to focus on making sure that there is a net positive output for the budget, not not a net negative output, which is what we currently have from now until 2050, according to all the treasury research, which is staggering, right? So yeah, we have to get a better deal for, for the workers and for the taxpayer. Something I've been really passionate about and we've covered on this show before and it's been very popular is, you know, what seems like a lot of structural inequality around superannuation and women. We know that women are retiring with 58% less than super than men. What are your thoughts on this situation and how we can we can shift that for the better? Well, one of the things I recommended in the book is that we amend the uh, equal opportunity arrangements, which effectively prevent employers from discriminating in favour of of female workers so that they can effectively put in a higher contribution rate for women if they would like to, to do that because that, that reflects the fact that combination of uh, often lower pay, which is still quite ridiculous but is um, unfortunately a feature of the labour market, but also uh, taking breaks during childbirth lead to lower uh, retirement saving accounts for women. So that, that is one structural way that can be addressed. I do think that the equal pay issue is a economy-wide issue. And then also there's a question of how we deal with, you know, um, those child rearing years um, across the board. So, but one particular thing we can deploy in super is allowing employers to discriminate in favour of women if they want to. And I know that some employers that have been through this process have found it very hard to get an, an exemption. So we shouldn't be making it harder to uh, support women to get a uh, a higher balance. So this is to raise the ceiling on how much you can contribute to, to top it up, is that right? No, this is about a legal barrier which prevents workplaces. So it's the Sex Discrimination Act, uh, which prevents employers from making higher contributions for women across their working life. And some employers want to do this and good on them. It's a great initiative. Uh, I don't want to see workplaces have to be put through the burden of trying to make an application to do this. They should just be allowed to do this because it reflects good leadership and it reflects the fact that uh, there is, you know, an awareness that this is uh, this is un- unfair. And it's, look, I'm, 
I'm, I'm a liberal, so I'm attracted to practical things. It's certainly one that needs to be addressed. It doesn't look like it's, it's tracking for much more improvement as we go along. It's quite scary. Uh, I think I read recently one of the fastest growing homeless groups in Australia is women of retirement age. So um, it's definitely, definitely one that needs to be looked at. If you could say one thing to our listeners about superannuation from all your experience and, and your, your thoughts, what would it be? It would be take control of your own life don't rely upon the super funds and work out how much you need for retirement and you should think about diversifying your investments. In many cases and under, under our own tax system, the best thing you can do with your additional money is to pay down your debt, secure your property because as you say, Kate, there are many women, there are many people that are facing poverty in retirement and owning your own home is a really important foundation for avoiding poverty. But at the end of the day, you want something a bit, bit more pity than that. So what I'll say is just be aware that, there, that there's vested interests and agendas everywhere in this space, right? So don't rely on the super funds to tell the truth. Try and, and, and get, get your own information. Do some of your own calculations and don't leave it to others. I guess and remember that it's your money. Even if uh, currently you, you can't touch it, it's still your money and it's out there doing stuff. So take control of it. That's a very good message and don't be scared of the funds saying that you're going to be poor in retirement if you take your super now because the way that the system works is we actually underwrite most people in retirement and if you take your super today there'll be of course a um, in many cases a higher pension so just beware of all the scary spooky people it can look pretty grim when you see some of the the proclamations but as you said you really need to um you know at the moment take matters into your own hands and also plug for finder you know if you're not happy with your super fund take a walk that's the other thing you know you, you can shop around and is your money it's um i think people don't think about that because it is you know something that's not for a long time for, for particularly younger people but it's still your money and you know you do have a right to to move it around and do what you want with it andrew thank you for your time thanks kate lovely to talk to you so some pretty radical ideas there, Sally. What, what do you think about it all? I mean, I'm kind of in two minds about it. Part of me does like the idea of giving people the option to access their super for stuff like buying a house because I know as you know, a young person in Australia right now, it's really difficult without you know that financial support. But also like... Yeah, I'm kind of scared of the idea of reaching into my future fund and thinking of, you know, like 70-year-old Sally retiring and being like, uh, I would have liked to have that money now. Yeah, I think like, I, I, you know, well, I definitely think it's great to always come at established systems with new ideas. But at the same time, you know, I think the world is changing and, and super needs to keep up. And we've certainly seen that with the way women have not benefited from super because it was established a certain way and, and the world's really changed since then. So I think, you know, great to keep the conversation going. Uh, not sure if I'm going to be dipping into mine at this point, though. So that is another episode of Pocket Money in the Can. Everything that we mentioned in the show today is available at our show notes at finder.com.au slash podcast. And not only is that a wrap for this episode, but it's also a wrap for season three. Can you believe it, Kate? What a journey we've been on. 
It feels like about five years because it's been such a weird year. <laughs> I know, right? And 2020 has given us no shortage of inspiration, that's for sure. We had the inspiring debt-free community episode at the very beginning and then, you know, lots of episodes around investing and the stock market crash as well as, of course, the impact of coronavirus on our career and money. And yeah, there are plenty of great episodes. So make sure to go back and listen if you haven't caught up already. We're going to be spending the next next little while researching what topics on our money and our lives to cover next so keep an eye on this space to see what's coming and as always you can follow us on instagram at pocket money podcast and reach out if there's any topics that you'd like us to look at for next season we're always really keen to hear what you guys are seeing and hearing out there and what we can help with if you do like the show don't be shy feel free to follow us or subscribe and give us a review wherever you listen to your fave podcasts as always, today's episode was hosted by myself, Sally, and Kate, produced by Ankita Shetty and Ben King, and editing by the wonderful Brianna Ansoldo of Bambi Media. Thanks again to Senator Andrew Bragg for joining us today and sharing his insights. And thanks to all you guys for listening in and making what's been a crazy first half of the year into an excellent season of Pocket Money. See you next time. Until next season. Thanks for listening to Pocket Money from Finder. Head over to finder.com.au slash podcast for the show notes for this episode. The Finder podcast is intended to provide you with tips, tools, and strategies that will help you make better decisions. Although we're licensed and authorized, we don't provide financial advice. So please consider your own situation or get advice before making any decisions based on anything in our show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.